welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. In this very special episode of Edition Wars, we are going to warn impressionable youths about the dangers of the devil's lettuce, multiclassing. A lot of kids experiment with it in college. They say it makes them feel good. I think it just stops them from achieving their potential. With me tonight are Sam Dillon, welcome Sam, and Jeremiah McCoy. Hi. Yep. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a good thing that I am anti-multiclassing because I can say that I have I have already given up on the devil's lettuce, and so it will not affect me or my family. You, you, you say this. Uh, I have earned lots of grief on TikTok from explaining that in 5e, you don't need multiclassing. Well, uh, it, there is a player in my game who has definitely got that reefer madness for multiclassing. <laughs> well, I, I would go so far as to say you don't need multiclassing in any edition and i would be happy to come onto your tiktok and tell people that <laughs> i do want to emphasize this is not just going to be an unmitigated hate fest for multi-classing no no it's no, not no, no. No. so that's let's, not how we do let's get into it because there are a couple of interesting tidbits in od and d that i would like to bring up so so here's the thing so in the original little brown books you had humans, which had three class choices, fighting man, magic user, cleric. You had dwarves that could be fighters. You had elves that could be fighter magic users and choose which one to be on any given adventure. And then you had hobbits, <coughs> halflings, which could be fighters. And then in the very first book of that edition, it actually says... Quote, there is no reason that players cannot be allowed to play as virtually anything, provided they begin relatively weak and work up to the top. And then it even goes so far as to say, I have a little note about changing class. It says, while changing class for other than elves, because that's already described, is not recommended, the following rule should be applied in order for men to change class. They must have a score of 16 or better in the prime requisite of the class that they wish to change to, and that that has to be the unmodified score. For example, a cleric with a strength of 15, right, uh, could not be a fighting man because he doesn't have a strength of 16 and strength is the fighting man's prime requisite, right? Um, magic users and clerics cannot switch class. But other than that, actually... OD&D has stated you can multi-class or you can switch classes at least, but you, you gotta, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta have some prerequisites and you can't really just switch back and forth unless you're an elf. And really the elf is the only one who is, you know, theoretically multi-classed. Okay. Now just to finish out OD&D in supplement one, Greyhawk, they actually add a new race, the half elf. And they add paladins as an option for a fighter who is lawful, gets a little bit of like cleric abilities. That's your first kind of 
sort of multi-class thing going on. And um, they add the thief. And the thief is available for humans as well as dwarfs, elves, half-elves, and, ha- and halflings slash hobbits, right? Then in Supplement 2 Blackmore, they add the monk class, which is basically a fighter thief, but is the subclass of a cleric because of certain different abilities it gets. And also they added an assassin, which is a neutral thief. And then lastly, in Eldritch Wizardry, they add druids as a subclass of cleric. So you have to be, you know, basically you're a cleric, but you're a sort of wilderness cleric. And it also adds psionics for all classes uh, and then puts a little few different twists on those. So basically, there's really no multiclassing in OD&D, except there's all multiclassing in, o- in OD&D, as long as your, your DM would let you do it. It's basically open, but there's really nothing in the rules that allow for a real true multi-class in the way that we usually talk about multi-class, except for the elf, which by standard or by tradition is a fighter magic user. Right. And it's definitely the, the beginning of a long tradition of fighter mages being right. almost supported in the rules. Right. <laughs> almost. Yes. Yes. Almost supported. I, I think... Uh, I think the correct addition at the end of that explanation is somewhere somebody is complaining to Gary Gygax and company at that time. <laughs> I can't make Elric. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I'm sure uh, I choose to believe that James M. Ward wasn't happy about that because he did all the work of contacting Michael Moorcock to <laughs> get permission to use the Melnobanean pantheon in deities and demigods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He must have felt something. Yeah. So, you know, so really uh, there's a sort of inauspicious beginning to multiclassing in OD&D. So let's, let's, unless anybody has anything to add, let's, cause we we're pretty, we'll pretty quickly move through these because there's really not a ton. Right. Sure. Um, but uh, for Holmes basic, which is your next sort of release right before AD&D, um, or actually at the same time as AD&D. But anyway, uh, you get humans, which can be a fighting man, a magic user, a cleric, or thief. So basically they incorporated the Greyhawk thief into the main core classes. So there's your core four, okay? Dwarf selves and halflings are also still um, restricted to fighter or thief for the dwarf and halfling, and fighter magic user is the only class available for the elf. It also has a note here that says there are a number of other character types which are detailed in the AD&D book. There are subclasses of the four basic classes, such as paladins and rangers, illusionists and wishes, monks and druids, and assassins. There are also half-elves. There are special characteristics for dwarves, elves, and halflings that are given if they are thieves. And in addition, rules for characters who possess the rare talent of psionic ability are detailed. However, for a beginning campaign, in other words, if you're using this book, Holmes Basic, these additions are not necessary, and players should accustom themselves to regular play before adding further complexities. And then, though, it says, again, at the DM's discretion, a character can be anything his or her player wants him to be. Characters must always start out inexperienced and relatively weak and build on their experience. Thus, an expedition might include, in addition to the four basic classes and races, a centaur, a lawful werebear, and a Japanese samurai fighting man. Sure. Right. In other words, we're not giving you rules for it, but you can do whatever you want, which is all in the 
I mean, that's the gaming ethos at that time anyway for D&D, right? Um, and then we, and, and, and remember also that Holmes was really, yeah, there are several places in that, that relatively short book that says, look, here's the basics. If you want to do more, then you need to, you know, you need to go to AD&D, right? Holmes was really a sort of jumping, you know, platform to get you to AD&D. That's why it only has three levels in it. And so, you know, all that. Whereas BX and Beckme, the next two sort of basic boxes, basic editions, they were actually their own thing. And in fact, if we look at BX, which is the Moldvay Cook and um, Moldvay Cook Marsh books, right? The the sort of magenta and light blue. The ones I started with. Right. And me too. Um, you get uh, humans, which can be clerics, fighters, magic users, or thieves, and you get dwarfs, elves, and halflings, which are their own class. So they don't choose their class. They choose, if you're a human, you choose a class, one of the core four. And if you're a dwarf, elf, or halfling, you don't. You just get a set of abilities and and types of weapons and and armor and skills and all that stuff that you can use based on what your race is. Beckme has the same exact thing, except the demi-humans, the dwarfs, elves, and halflings, uh, amongst others, get actual classes via the Gazetteer line, which was uh, headed up by Bruce Hurd. Yep. And uh-huh. so you've got the Gaz 6, which is the Dwarves of Rockholm, for example, gives you Dwarf Clerics. Gaz 8, Five Shires, gives you Halfling Masters, which is basically a Druid. Gaz 10, Orcs of Dar, gives you Orcs and other humanoid races as PCs, like Kobolds and all that, and Bugbears. And then Gaz 2, for example, gives you Principalities of Glantry, which isn't doesn't really give you a multi-class, but it does give you specialty wizards. So they expanded that a lot, and I know Jeremiah has a lot to say about that. Yeah, I, I've read uh, those gazetteers and actually spent some time talking about them on YouTube for a while. But I will say, uh, first off, don't read Orcs of Thar. It is a silly place. Um, <laughs> Even the art in it is really ridiculous. Yeah, it was essentially presented as a humor book and it fails mm-hmm. on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, the... Dwarven Cleric was an interesting sort of discovery for me because I was still playing the the box sets stuff and the Gazetteer stuff for a while. And when they got to the Dwarven sort of Cleric build, uh, uh, it was their attempt at doing essentially what we're doing in 5e these days of uh, of, of giving you a player option that isn't actually multi-classing, but gives you the benefits of what you're looking for for multi-classing to begin with. Uh, Interesting. Is, so was it was it similar to a kit here? Where are we? Uh, so it gives you uh, like a, a slightly lesser version of like a cleric with the dwarf uh, base stuff. Okay. Um, um frustrating choice but okay uh so you it's it's a bit like uh, an eldritch knight isn't quite up to being a wizard sure well four spell well, levels says ouch. yeah i mean you're you're saying it's frustrating and i and i get that but at the time it was wonderful 
Oh yeah. No, no, like, no. I, I'm I'm only frustrated because the whole dynamic of uh, you have to pay something to get your dwarf features because humans have no features is just a right. thing that drives me crazy. That's all. I mean, it, that's a design choice, right? But <laughs> one I have hated I, for. Right, and uh, I and I get that, but but from the perspective of the sad part of it is if someone didn't know that this line existed or they, or they weren't playing in the known world. So they didn't care about that line of products. They would not get this and they wouldn't have access to it. And if they didn't um, you know, it's not like today where you could just pop on Google and you could literally learn everything. You know, I mean, the, the world is at our fingertips right now. Well, back then, you know, we're talking 1980, 1981. Yeah. You just didn't know, right? Like you, it, it, you, mm-hmm. I didn't know when Dwarves of Rock Home came out. The only reason I ever had it was because it happened to be in the store that I, and I went there one day. Oh, yeah. You definitely needed to go to the store to just know what was coming out because what's advertising? It wasn't the only supplemental rules that they would put in those books, too. Uh, right. There were several right. rules about being a merchant. In, in a few books, well, like, how do you set up a caravan or things about putting together a war band and right. random things like that were also put into the, it was more than just here's lore about that place you're going to. Right. Um, right. Which would be a model that they sort of follow through the history of D&D, honestly. But right. at the time, you didn't realize it unless you bought it. Because it wasn't advertised that way. Yeah. And the first several gazetteers were great. They were wonderful. And then they sort of dropped off in quality, as often happens with a, a you know, a series. It's a, you're, you'd be hard pressed to find a series of, you know, 14 books made for a game that that all, all of them had equal excellent quality like that would be amazing. Um but, uh, you know, I mean, anyway, that's that's sort of a different. Uh, different well, yeah, I will, in their defense, say that uh, some of the later books weren't that bad. Some uh, some were, obviously, mm-hmm. but um, like their essentially drow equivalent book was mm-hmm. actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was much later in the line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because uh, the sort of dark-skinned elves in Mistara are different from drow, the traditional drow that people think about. Anyway, that could be a whole nother topic. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the thing is that Beckme was then compiled in 1991 into the Rules Cyclopedia, the only ever produced single book published and sold that has character creation and how to run the game and a bestiary. It's the only single D&D, single core D&D book that actually includes an entire game. But anyway, I'm, I, I love that book, by the way. It's a great book. What it does is it takes and it adds the Druid class, okay, for a subclass. It's a subclass of Cleric. It's, it's actually a multi-class type of thing because at ninth level, a Cleric can become a Druid. Otherwise, you can't be a Druid. So a Druid is not a class you can choose from the beginning. You have to actually basically multi-class into it or choose to go into it instead of being a cleric anymore. Hmm. It also added the mystic, which is basically an unarmed fighter thief, which is basically a monk. Um, And it did not maintain or retain, I should say, any of the demi-human subclasses 
from the gazetteer right. line, which I was very sad about because I feel like that was an oversight yeah. that they could have they could have fixed. That, right. that was a shame. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, the mystic is a, a sort of class offshoot that uh, doesn't come up much. <laughs> like most people forget it existed and uh and and now if i mention the mystic they think it's i'm talking about the ua right uh, yep. so so, so yeah. before we escape from uh odnd completely mm-hmm. as we're about to uh i did want to well we're in of, basic my friend we already well, left sure. odnd <laughs> sorry a, a, a distinction without a difference for many of our audience if not you two Yes, but uh, as the as the 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 esteemed host of this podcast, who is responsible yeah. for that half of the D and D history, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so there's a bunch of things I find really interesting in that run that you've mm-hmm. you've walked us through, which I really appreciate because I don't have those rules in front of me. Um, and uh, the first of those is right from the beginning. You've got these scions. That's not a class with class advancement. It's just mm-hmm. sort of this extra set of powers. Like our only way to store that now would be a supernatural gift or a feat, and that's and those are both weird. Um, right. I, I've gone through those rules before, and they are real strange um, because they do just sit sort of alongside your your class, and it's mostly for fighters and thieves. Once thieves come along. Um, Paladins and Rangers are both kind of weird because they're they're inherently multi-class. Um, you you go along as basically a fighter until you start picking up spellcasting. And right, but we're not there yet, right? Because that's AD and D. No, no, no. That shows up in tactical studies rules. Uh, this sorry, the strategic review, the very earliest. Oh, yeah. So I'm not right, but I'm not talking. Okay, yeah. So I did not bother to bring up a bunch of stuff from Dragon and Strategic Review because that's way beyond the scope of what we're really doing. Right. I I, I thought it relevant for just here's a fighter who's also a caster. Um, (laughs) It it certainly shows the the thinking that led to eventual design decisions. Mm -hmm, Yeah, for sure. Um, And also, even even in the basic classes, like once there's both a cleric and a paladin uh, and a fighter, you you do sort of see this spectrum of uh, sort of combat ability to divine ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and cleric isn't all the way toward the divine side, right? They're intended to be kind of okay melee combatants, um, unlike magic users. Um and my point is more that they were trying to store a multi-class concept in a single class in, in several yeah. of those cases. Yeah. Uh, it isn't, it isn't multi-classing, but they're trying to get at things that would later be solvable with multi-classing. It also reflects the change in a design philosophy from we're adapting a war game. Mm-hmm to we're trying to make it so you can make the character you have in your head. Right. Because all of the character classes that are in ODD are basically, these are unit types mm-hmm. from chainmail, basically. And here's how you make that. And they hadn't really conceived of how do you 
you know, are you making a character from a fiction you recognize? And things like the Ranger, the Druid, the Paladin are them drifting more in the, oh, you're making a story. Right. And, but also recognize that, um, you know, supplement three Eldritch wizardry was the, the book where psionics was really introduced for OD and D and everybody can have psionics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so you get, I mean, well, so I take it back monks and druids cannot have, they, they don't have any psychic potential. They have to not be monks and druids, but everybody else, right? Everybody else can be psychic, and it's not even as I mean, it's a a ninety one or greater on a on a d one hundred roll. So there's a nine percent chance that everybody is capable of psionic power, which I know. I mean, you know, yeah, that's a, a, it's only a nine percent chance of succeeding. But think about that for a second. That means every single character has an 8%, I mean, other than Monks and Druids, have an 8% chance of having some pretty powerful abilities. Yep. Right? So, very interesting way to bring that into, um, and I only really mentioned this because we were talking about, you know, Chainmail being, you know, I mean, it's also funny, if you look at these OD&D books, when you look at them, almost every single supplement after the first three has a segment on, you know, um, alternative combat rules right because remember that the first the first set really just assumed you were going to use the chainmail rules and the rolling a d20 to hit and and all that stuff and with the matrix that was the sort of alternate you know variation you could do if you wanted to but really they assumed most people at first at least were going to be using chainmail combat rules and then then as time goes on all these supplements get released and it's all their different Basically, they're different campaign rules, right? Greyhawk was Gary Gygax, and Blackmore was Dave Arneson, and Eldritch Wizardry was, um, you know, I, I think what Tim Cask and Rob, or, oh no, Eldritch Wizardry, uh, Gygax and Bloom. But then um, Tim Cask did a lot of work on a bunch of these as well. So, like, you get all these, and Rob Koontz, of course, helped with the Greyhawk one because he was running a dual campaign. And so, you get all these rules, and they're all just the campaign rules showing really, they're really indicative of how you can take the first three books, which have the basic rules, right? The framework, and you can make your own kind of game with them. And they're adding, and every time you see this, like, oh, here's your alternate combat rules, combat resolution rules, because we have to, you know, we have to have those because we're moving further and further away from the chain mail. And by the time they get to Holmes Basic and to BX, They've completely gone. They're completely not even referencing chainmail anymore. Now it's all about. There are still some things in Holmes that are uh, sort of, kind of, almost editing errors because they didn't realize that it's referring to something that would be familiar to chainmail people and not really familiar to others anymore. But um, for the most part, by the time you get to Holmes and BX, there are no sort of chainmail isms in there, and now they're just full on in the RPG. It's also fun to watch the drift of who's a fan of what in the design. Mm-hmm. Because, like you said, the Aldrich thing was largely uh, Gygax and Bloom. Mm-hmm. And Gygax was a huge nerd for pulps. He 
kind of was disdainful right. of Tolkien. So, of course, they're going to start bringing in the weird uh, you know, science fantasy stuff, right. which is much more prevalent in the pulps. Uh, whereas the base system, you know, chainmail the reason it had all of that stuff in there is because everybody was a Tolkien fan and they wanted to right. bring in their Tolkien stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's interesting is as this sort of drift happens, that's also when you start seeing more of the sort of multi-classing. Because remember, in OD and D, there was multi-classing available, but the DM had to say, "Oh, yeah, that works." Right? Yeah. When you start getting later, and that we've drifted far enough away, now it gets codified in the rules. If you want to multi-class by AD and D, if you want to multi-class, here's this huge page and a half where I'm going to tell you about all the rules and all the only possible combinations and who can do it. Right. Well, two different systems. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'll just to point out by the time also that we get to supplement three Eldritch wizardry, it is Gygax and Bloom, but like Steve Marsh and Dennis Suster and Jim Ward and Tim Cask were all in there sort of with their fingers in the pie. Right. And discussing things. And, you know, Tim Cask wrote the foreword for that book. And, you know, he's talking about, you know, psionic combat and how to, you know, how that makes the game different and all these different things. So, you know, I know Gygax and Bloom have their name on the cover, but they're not the only brains that helped put this together. And that's true, basically, of all the books. But but just in specifically this one, which which is sort of the furthest afield from the initial ideas because of all this psionic stuff. It's very interesting. And it sort of makes sense for why they're drifting away. And when you think about, okay, the multi-classing rules. So do we want to talk about AD&D multi-classing rules? Sure. Sure. Uh, as with many areas of the rules that were, you know, a little messy. <laughs> uh, so uh, there are two multi-classing systems in uh, AD&D first edition, uh, also second edition. As far as I know, they're the same between the two, aside from different level caps and possibly class combinations mm-hmm. that are possible in the two. So uh, one of them is called multi-classing and the other is called dual classing. And uh, I will posit there's a third, but I'll discuss that when we get done. With all right. That, that's fair. Uh, I, I will actually also add in first edition, uh, they didn't call it dual classing in the first book they oh, called they it characters with two classes mm-hmm. oh great yes cool uh so <laughs> to to cover the last thing first um dual classing is this idea that you advance for a while in one class because you're human only humans no mm-hmm. no demi humans need to apply for whatever strange reason in gary's you can, brain you, you can be semi-human which means you can be a half elf oh for god's sake Fine. I mean, that's what it calls it in the first edition book is semi-human, not what a, di- a gross dim- word, right? Demi-human is, is elves, dwarves, halflings, gnomes, any other playable race, right? Non-humans, right? A half human, like a half elf is a semi-human. I know it's sure. bizarre. Anyway. That's <laughs> um, fair. Um, so the idea is you advance for a while and then you set down all of your class features other than hit points and start up in your second class and you you play as just that class and if you use any of your character abilities from your first class before your second class is of the same level as your first class then 
you get no experience for that adventure. Uh, Gene Wilder, you get nothing. <laughs> dot gif. Um, and you can keep doing this, right? You can you can dual class again if you want to, and you have to if you want to play a bard. Because yep. no, 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 weird... no, no. Bard is the third one that I was going to mention. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm not trying to, not trying to jump your gun here. Just, it, uh, 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 sure. All right. So, Sam, uh, what did you? Uh, well, so I, I, I'm, I'm questioning whether you're correct that you can. So, a character with two classes cannot just keep dual classing they have okay. they have to be one class and by the way it i was correct about what a semi-human means but i was wrong that they could actually dual class because they can't but okay. uh the only I human think of half being able to do stuff right i know good lord um o- only human can do it but you you can go from one class and then become another and then that's it you can't do that again unless you're going to be a bard that's why i called it a different thing it's the third one and it has parameters on it right you have to be at least five levels of fighter. Then you have to get a minimum to eighth level as a thief. So you have to have at least three levels of, of thief on top of the fifth level of fighter. You can be 10th level, you know, so you can be a five levels of thief as well. And then you multi-class into bard, yep. right? So that's, that's your triple class. So it's not not really like a like a two class one because the two class one they can only ever do the two and that's it. You, well, you then you then jump into druid and you have to get some out of druid before you're a bard or are you a bard as oh yeah I druid? forgot yeah. Druid. yes yeah, yeah you, you have to do druid yeah yeah um, so you have to end up like fifteenth level before you can be right twelfth or fifteenth level before you can but, be a bard. But the wild thing is about it is I, I did this math once for a tribality article. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be between fifth and seventh level in fighter, I think. Is that is that right? Yeah, something uh, like that. Yeah, I know it's minimum you, five. Yeah. Right. And then you start gaining thief levels. It's just thief advancement is so fast compared to your next level of fighter that mm-hmm. if you're trying to get from seventh to eighth in fighter, uh, you can get to fifth level in thief in the same time. Yeah. So here's what it says. It says bards begin play as fighters. They must remain exclusively fighters until they have achieved at least fifth level of experience. Anytime thereafter, and in any event prior to attaining the eighth level, so you're right, yeah, fifth, so fifth to seventh, seventh, they must change their class to that of a thief. Again, sometime between fifth and ninth level of ability, uh-huh. bards must leave off thieving so they can get th- you know three or three levels of thief right till till their eighth level. And before they become ninth level, they have to say, okay, well, now we're going to begin clerical studies and become a druid at ninth level, right? Because you can't be a druid until you're ninth level. That's that's actually very similar to the rule cyclopedia Beckme thing, right? And then uh, then you bec- then technically you're not a, really a druid, Wait. right? You're a bard now, but that's because you had to become a druid for at least one level. Wait, is it? It says is that true? it says first it, it huh. says they must change their class to that of thieves. Again, no, I, I, some, I, I no, no, about thieves. It says sometime yeah. between fifth and ninth level of ability, bards must leave off thieving and uh-huh. begin clerical studies as druids. But okay. at this time, they are actually bards and under druidical tutelage. Oh, there you go. Bards must fulfill the requirements in all the above classes before progressing to bards table one. Because, uh, folks, then, there are uh, two bards tables. But anyway. <laughs> and then we get into the right. 
class weirdness of bards. Yes. And and there is in I think one of the uh, strategic strategic review issues also a bard because I did a whole series on this for tribality. Yeah. Had to it it even that. calls out that this is different from that specifically yeah. that uh, that write up. Yeah. Um, but this is why you know in on bards table one they get druid spells because technically they triple classed fighter thief druid. Yep. And so a fighter thief druid is actually just named a bard. Although right. that chart doesn't make any sense because uh, it starts you at level one. Right. 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 But whatever. Yeah. As if you did not retain your yeah your abilities. Right. Yes, um, I know. And it's it goes up odd. through level 23. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> that's the very strange dual classing system where you can have a bunch of abilities you just promise not to use until you get good enough to use them again. Mm -hmm. And I guess you should start out as fighter because at least you get hit points to survive with. Right. And of but course, in, in, in typical first edition fashion, the way it's written about a character with two classes is very strict. I mean, literally, if you use a oh, single brutal. ability from uh, other than your hit dice and hit points, right? Yeah. You, you're done. It's over. You cannot be two-classed. Oh, boring. But there's, um, but there's another, there's another way. If so, you, so you know. th th there is, no, there is another. And it's multi-classing, <laughs> uh, which is not for humans at all, ever. No humans need apply. Mm -hmm. How this... Although here's where the, here's with, where the half elf you can be a half elf yeah you can be a half elf for this uh, how this interacts with what the flavor text says about humans and non humans is dizzying but let's move on it's, it's not what we're here to talk about well Can't so let, draft. I mean yeah let's talk about the actual I, I don't know if so you're are you looking at two e because let's let's compare what options are available. Uh, Oh, oh! I, I know there are more options available in Tui. Okay. Uh, I don't have both books open in front of me. I'm doing okay. this uh, off the book. So the f the first choice in one e is cleric fighter. Sure. And the interesting thing about this section of the book is that it actually tells you what the benefits of doing this multi class are. This combination is strong in defense and revitalization capabilities, plus the offensive missile and melee melee combat power of the fighter. Hit points average will be good. Half elves and half orcs may be cleric fighters. So it even then tells you the, the race restrictions, right? So, so each each possible combo has its own right. restrictions on race. Yep. And um, you're, you're going to, I think there are some three class combinations there allowed in, in 1E. Yeah. yeah so there's, you have some, there's some fighter mage thieves, right. there's, some fighter there's, mage clerics. Yeah, there's cleric fighter, cleric fighter magic user, cleric ranger. Cleric magic user, cleric thief, cleric assassin, fighter magic user, fighter illusionist, fighter thief. Sure. And, and I will add a note. Fighter here. assassin, fighter magic user, thief, and magic user thief, and illusionist uh, thief. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll add a note here. Uh, the first time I played first edition AD&D, I went for a multi-class character. Mm. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, you know. <laughs> I I'd come from playing an elf, which had magic and was a fighter and it could do mm -hmm. stuff. And I saw that there was a fed a fighter, magic user, thief, and I was like, 
Well, that sounds even cooler. I want to do all the stuff. I want to do all the stuff. Uh, and my my game master was was quite forgiving and he's like yeah sure go ahead um <laughs> and you know it was it was interesting um in first edition uh survivability was low but i managed to last for a while so um but yeah it, it was a uh it, it was an interesting experience trying to work out the math i ended up relying on my game master a lot uh so one of the things that is one of the reasons you would bother with all this multi-classing is that it's letting you split your experience between two classes why would you want to do that wouldn't it be great great to get to some higher level abilities well friend you're not human you have a level cap that level cap is in the low to mid single digits if you want to play this character for any length of time you need permission to put your experience points places mm -hmm. because demi-human level limits are brutal and low in first ed. Uh, they're only going to go up a little bit in second ed. I feel like we covered a bunch of this in one of our really early episodes mm -hmm. on experience yeah, points. We did. But um, the, the ability to have another place that, I don't know, uh, 40,000 or so experience points can can go live and give you something mm -hmm. is just permission to keep playing the character and advancing for longer. Um, so you're going to it's going to take you a really long time to get to second, second, second maybe. <laughs> I'll, I'll add a note. Uh, in the entire time I played first edition I don't think I ever played with a DM who played rules as written. Sure. Um, sure, that's normal. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, they they all homebrewed and all just like, no, nah, I'm not following that rule. Um, and so, uh, game masters I played with would remove the level caps. Game masters I played with were like, I don't want to deal with two different things just because you're human. You can multiclass because two, because they just didn't want to deal with the complication. Sure. Um, so I. I, I certainly saw a lot of that. People read these old rules and are like, how did you play? Well, we ignored the well, rules. Not like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time we just ignored the rules because we didn't like them. And and you know what? Gary and company probably would have been like, fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um right. Like everything that uh Gygax said on forums about how he ran the game was, you know. The rules are uh, certainly what he wrote down one time, but not necessarily mm -hmm. what he did. And, and, you know, fair. Well, what I was going to say was when Jeremiah said that, you know, we, we all ignored, you know, DMs ignored rules and used other rules and whatnot. The, the reason that that was so common, there's two reasons. Number one, it was just expected. That's what you did. I mean, all of us were homebrewing stuff back then. Even if we were playing on modules, we were homebrewing how we dealt with the different parts of the rules. But secondly, some of the rules are contradictory. Yep. Right. And some of the things that were written, you know, in the, in the different mag magazines, strategic review and, what was it polyhedron and dragon magazine and all that like a lot of the things written in there you know it depended on whether you considered any of that really valuable whether you put it into your game and there really was 
you know, th- there are things in the DMG that you can't use everything that's in there because they're too contradictory. Right. And, you know, this is a, a major shaping effect on the whole culture of, you know, sort of roll your own D&D. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of the, the rules that were printed were just bad ideas. I'm looking at <laughs> comeliness on this particular discussion. This was a bad uh, idea. I, I, I'm still looking at something we absolutely covered on air at great length, uh, which is uh, the GM's rating of your role play of your, oh, of your class. Yeah. yeah. How you determine how long your training took oh. and how much. Yeah. Yeah, Don't yeah. do that. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that pretty much gets us through the multi-classing of 1E, I think. Uh, unless yeah, there are some much. other systems that I don't know about that you guys need to trot out. Well, just I just uh, wanted to point out that so um, you know in in first edition it was really the the hardcover first edition books were really the first ones that had all of the options that were in all the previous books, yeah. right? So you had not only fighter but also ranger. Right. And paladin yep. and not only thief, but also assassin and not only cleric, but also druid and that sort of thing. Right. All of those are possible. And a lot of them can be multiclassed into or out of. But then also when Unearthed Arcana, the, the actual hardback book, not the fifth edition online thing, was released, it included barbarians and cavaliers, and thief acrobats and, and more assassin. Right. Um, and. And just that sort of different. So they were they were kept adding on, and yep. it's no surprise that some of this stuff didn't work together, right? And it's no surprise also that some of it was never addressed in terms of officially do can can you multiclass this or that, or can you just take one ability or you know one idea because there was just too much. Well, I mean, that's that's the listed reason that uh, Zeb Cook gave in the forward to the second ed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, DMG as to why there's a new edition out of the player's handbook. You know what I mean? Yep. There, there's something else that I think modern audiences who are not familiar needs to be aware of. Uh, and you've talked about it in some of your previous uh, videos as, uh, related to uh, just like basic stuff about classes and such. You have to achieve minimum stats on your die rolls. Yeah. Right. This is, there's no standard array. Uh, Chances are you are doing 3d6 in a row. So that's not true. Uh, 4d6 drop lowest is actually the first listed standard. But so Uh, 3d6 in order is an option that's listed, but it's listed as an option and not, Right, given but, pride of place. Right, but in in that's in two e in in, in uh, and, and maybe even in one e. I can't remember that section. Right, I, I know for a fact in the Beckme it was okay. Well, so, yeah. so 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 here, here, and for, here's right. Here's what I was going to say was people coming to one e who have already established the their dice rolling for character creation based on. Becky oh, sure. and BX, they're rolling 3D6 down the line. It's, yeah, it's again, right. about your sort of cultural standards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and, and, and as far as it goes, I was just checking here to, 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 to see if it's the same in first edition that it was in the... Um, 
uh, the range of these abilities, rating 15. It doesn't actually give me the die rolling method. Where is it? Oh, it's uh, in the DMG. So it could why. be the DMG. Yeah. Ah, okay. Here, because players don't need to know that yeah, for reasons. That's right. <laughs> yes, that was another thing that was done. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, the. the um, yeah, so met, met in the DMG, page 11, method one, uh, all scores are recorded and arranged in the order the player desires 46 rolled, drop the lowest. There we are. Method okay. two, all scores recorded and arranged as in method one. However, you roll 3d6 12 times and the highest six are retained. Method, yeah. method three is roll according to each category in order, strength, int, whiz, dex, con, ka. And we a hundred percent for sure covered yeah. this in a whole episode. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, I mean it, that is a part of the conversation with multiclassing because you had to meet sure. these yeah. requirements. Mm -hmm. Uh and that if you're meeting the requirements to be a fighter, magic user, thief, you rolled I mean, insane. Well, right. no, that's that's just three nines. Well, so Isn't like it? Like if you're, if you're, but also remember they were doing things like method four, which is you roll 3d6 to get six ability scores. And then you do that 12 times and then you pick the one you want. Right. right? Sure. Not, not rolled 3d6, 12 times it's roll 3d6, six times to generate the six ability scores. Do that 12 times. And so you're making 12 character stat sets. And then you pick the one that you want the most. Right? Whatever it takes, guys. Right. Um, so in terms of that, let's see, what is the requirement for for multi-classing? Uh, well, for example, rangers have uh, fairly steep requirements. Um, so the paladins, you, yeah. Well, well, you can't multi-class a paladin on, no, on no. a good day because it's a human-only class. Yep. Um, yeah, but the for the fight for the paladin, you have to have a strength of twelve, an int of nine, a wisdom of thirteen, a con of nine, and a seventeen charisma. Yep. So it's hard to get, become a paladin in the first place. Um, and if someone tells you they rolled a cavalier, that's how you yeah, know they're cheating. Good luck. Yeah, uh, yeah. rangers, you have to have a strength of thirteen, intelligence of thirteen, wisdom of fourteen, and con of fourteen. But yeah, sure. and, and, yeah, but yeah, the you can make these multi-class combos. It's just you maybe not be very good at it, given that you're mm -hmm. like point by. I think does start to be introduced in second edition for the most part, uh, and but like the idea of a standard array didn't come along until much later. Sure, that that is for sure a, a third ed thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yep. So I, I think when people who are not familiar with it are looking at it, they need to remember, how are you getting your stats? Because I remember I kind of sucked for a while because <laughs> uh, my dex wasn't that high. It was like I had an intelligence of 12 and a strength of 11, but my uh, dex was nine. And you're not a good thief right. with a dex of nine. <laughs> I'm gonna pick this lock. No, you're not. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're early on. You're definitely relying on dex bonuses just to pass some of your uh, thief skill checks. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I don't think that second ed 
multi-classing and dual classing make any major changes that we need to cover. Other than there are some additional options open for what can multi-class and the level caps rise for all of those non-human races. Also, bards are uh, just a thief, uh, and, and, just and, a rogue option. Right, they're, they're just a type of rogue. That's, for, that's true. Um, and uh, they do have their own experience point table uh, that is very slightly slower than bards, but uh, it is enough faster than other spellcasters that um, the board is way more competitive than it looks at first glance. This is all just stuff I discovered while uh, working on the Tribality series of boards. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are some weird multi-classing formats that I'm, uh, I'm forgetting about that showed up in second edition because everything showed up at some point. Well, um, I, uh, I think you can't have a, a multi-classing discussion about second edition without at least mentioning kits. Oh, for sure. Uh, uh, the, yeah. They don't delve as deep into your fully multi-class now as some later things do, but please t- tell us about kits, Jeremiah. I mean, kits, obviously, in second edition, it wasn't as, as integral at the beginning, but with the expansion of the various books about the uh, what was it? The complete wizard, or uh, the, the they have class books basically, where there are a bunch of kits in each of them, and they give you a little taste of having what we would recognize as multi-classic. Like you have a, a few cool abilities. Um, we would call them uh, skills, but at the time they were proficiencies, non-weapon proficiencies, um, and. It was like a little dip of a of, of an extra class on top of what you're doing, at which, some cost of your existing abilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, uh, you've reminded me that there was another form of multi-classing in the second ed DMG. Uh, it was the build your own class model, where you were going to pay in experience point requirement to advance. Uh, this would let you be all the fighter you wanted to be while also being a cleric or whatever. Who cares? Um, <laughs> all the different things you could want to be, you could mash together in this class for the low, low price of like 4,000 experience points to get second level. But it, by God, it was there. Yeah. I, I, I think any discussions about the way third edition turned into what it was, you know, you have to reference back to kits were kind of popular and the idea of kits kind of evolves into i think that i think the privilege of selling an unlimited number of kits to users uh is sort of informing the business decision that is prestige classes yeah in in at absolute most generous a subconscious way but realistically come on and and come on who are we kidding also, the kits, uh, like multi-classing, basically evolves so that you can make your character fit a fiction in your head of what kind of character you want. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in principle, you could have always just said, hey, I'm 
you know, sort of elighting some of these abilities. I won't use them or I'll emphasize them more. I'll describe them differently to get mm-hmm. to my concept. But no, no, they want to make sure you've got a hard mechanical support you can point to, um, which brings us to 2.5 because <laughs> th- there's mm-hmm. always more. Um, so in 2.5, you do have a, another unique kind of uh, multi-classing, sort of, uh, which is that... Sort of. Uh, it, it sort of is very operative. All right, mm-hmm. folks. Um, which is that as you build your class out of these, these character points, you can, for some classes, grab an ability that is exclusive to another class. So if you've always wanted to play a paladin with a weapon specialization, and if you haven't, were you even paying attention? Because it's great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then finally you can do that without needing to uh, commit fell deeds in your GM's name um, or whatever. I don't know your life. Um, and, and this, ex- this sort of got extended into, I guess you can be a wizard with cleric spells, mm-hmm. but like just one sphere. Yeah. Right. And that kind of thing. Uh, but so there was that, that kind of class dipping within a class, but you're always paying something out of your existing class. Some classes just cared less. Right. And also this is the era of skills and powers. Uh, uh, right. That's that, that's the 2.5. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, and where they just like, here's an alternate system altogether. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Um, Okay, am I missing anything? Uh, I mean, shout out to Second Ed Psionics rules, both sets. <laughs> uh, which, man, being a, rolling for wild talent sure was a great chance to lose your character at first level. Uh, <laughs> because yeah. suddenly all of your mental stats are three. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Um, yeah. it's, it's like Traveler, but meaner somehow <laughs> god at uh, least with traveler you got a cool story about how your character died during character creation right <laughs> <laughs> instead of just an aneurysm mm. i guess right cool i i just had a series of micro strokes why <laughs> uh, so i'll also anyway. point out that in this era this is the time when because of all these complete book of books all those brown covered ones remember number 10 in that series was the complete book of humanoids which introduced the so-called monstrous races as possible you know pc races and what you could do about that and you know this is sort of it's it's really uh, uh it's sort of a reflection of okay now we're we have evolved the game again to a certain point it follows the same sort of evolutionary cycle that OD&D had and it follows the same evolutionary cycle that AD&D had and now here it is 2E AD&D and we've had this cycle and then we get the 2.5 books along with the end sort of end game of those complete books and then we're about to get third edition which basically throws everything into completely different framework we heard you Absolutely. liked multi-classing, so we multi-classed your multi-class. Right. <laughs> well, it, right. And and so in third edition, every everything about those previous multi-classing systems just goes 
all the way out the window. Uh, retained in no regard. You can choose to see similarities, but that's that, that's more really kind of a stretch to even choose to. Um, because everyone's on the same XP chart now. It's, mm-hmm. it's a unified XP chart. Right. I, and uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the only thing that sort of makes a nod to it is like you're sacrificing XP if you go too far, I think, if I remember correctly. In like you. Yeah. Right. So, so if you have a non favored class, if it's not your race's favorite multi class, sure. Um, then you start paying an XP penalty if your classes are out of sync. Yeah. But by too much, you have to stay even. And this is them trying to kind of uh, put a little bit of a kibosh on uh, pure level dipping mm-hmm. because they can see that level dipping, like, I want to just take the first level or two of this thing because that's where you get all the really cool stuff was going to be a problem. Yeah. And I mean, it is. Yeah. Congratulations. But it isn't really solved because you just have to pick the right race that lets you get away with that nonsense. So. Yeah, because because ultimately when you multi-class, you're getting every class feature of the new class and unlike AD&D you retain <laughs> everything in the old class right and so it, it's just added together into it's, your pile of stuff it's just added together it's just all available to you now right and, and even your attack bonus is just points of base attack bonus mm-hmm. that lead to you getting more attacks per round right i i think that the uh the there's at least a little bit of similarity, just a touch of races class in that certain races cost you class levels mm-hmm. to take. Uh, sure. The, the level adjustment stuff is very much about that. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was massively unpopular. Oh, yeah. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, do you know how much it takes to make tieflings unpopular, Jeremiah? <laughs> I mean, think about that. Well, also they weren't uh, sexy and uh, uh, with horns in quite the same way they were in fourth and fifth. Um, with all respect, my friend, I I saw the second Ed Planescape dri- drawn by the hand of Dieter Lisi himself. Like they weren't. But yeah, but I mean, like their description was that they were more like mutants and less like sexy demon boys. I'm. Mm- Okay, their description I, may have been that way, but they were drawn as dark, brooding, sexy demon boys. Okay, uh, that's fair. That's <laughs> the, the, the the tiefling art from Planescape is just straight on sex kitten with horns. Like, I can't yeah. be clearer. Like, they're supposed to be weird and have weird mm-hmm. abilities and, and and all kinds of strangeness and like, nope, nope. They're just. Hotter than you, sure. And, and now they're queer icons. Like, uh, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love tieflings. They're they're so much fun to play. They look awesome. Like, no hate. Just like I, I'm just saying, it took a lot of work for Third Ed to make them unpopular player choices. That's fair. I, like uh, them and 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 Trow and uh, a couple others were like, this would be great to play, except you've got to sacrifice levels. Right. And that was almost okay if you're playing a 
melee type. Because, uh, okay, it's some hit points and a point of base attack bonus, and that sucks. But, like, a caster? It, it, so I get my higher level spells slower? Are you sure about that? Right. Um, and that was actually a, a major problem, like cost, in multi-classing any kind of spellcaster in third ed. Um, you just aren't going to have spells that are competitive with what you're up against. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem for how spell save DCs are calculated. So your spells aren't going to work if they have uh, if they have saving throws. Um, you're going to have a hard time beating spell resistance, I think. Like, it was really, really tough to do any multi-classing as a spellcaster. So a lot of the multi-classing was more for, you know, weapon users. Or, or you'd run into a prestige class that was specifically right. built to help that spellcaster. Right. And that didn't come along till 3.5. Yeah. Uh, there were, it was, I think none of that in 3.0, uh, the closest that you really saw was something like, I think it's called a spell sword, uh, yeah. a, a player in my college game, uh, hi Ben, what's up that played one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, they got somewhat reduced, uh, base tack bonus progression and about half caster progression. And then a couple of channel the weapon through my channel the spell through my weapon kinds of things. Um, and they were fine if you were really, really sure that was the concept you wanted to play and you're willing to super commit to it. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of things you can brute force into working if you are, are really sure and you're willing to uh, like be in a party that's not ultra-optimized. Um, for example, another friend of mine uh, had a, uh, an, I think, an 18th level character who's a fighter for Wizard 14. Oh, actually, that's, that's pretty awesome. They can do a lot of stuff. That's enough fighter to get some pretty good stuff. And then Wizard's not really slacking at 14th level, even out of 18 levels. But, you know, he spent a lot of his itemization to stay up to snuff. Is kind of my point. Yeah. Um, I, I think we should back up and say up front, third and 3.5 sort of flipped the script in that uh, multi-classing was a bolted on system to first and second edition, right? It yep. was a, here's a fix for you to make the characters that don't fit the fiction of these normal base class. Okay, cool. Third and 3.5, it's, we expect you to multi-class. They certainly expected you to always regard multi-classing as on the table, right? Yeah. Uh, no matter what level of, let's say, fighter or whatever you are, uh, you're making a choice if you take your next level in fighter also. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, third ed is the addition with a functionally infinite number of classes because there's all this, all this prestige classes. Yeah. You know, there there are probably some 30 or 40 core classes by the end of 3.5. I'm not looking it up. Don't at me. Um, <laughs> but there are for sure a, a solid uh, three or 400 prestige classes. 
and those all have entry requirements, yeah. right? And so you've got to satisfy a, a list of requirements that you know has something to do with the base class they expect you to take. Um, and we talked about this a bit when we covered the uh, third ed DMGs, right? Uh, we talked about prestige classes, but these could get pretty arcane in terms of how you were going to be satisfying them. Um, so if you're expected to start with fighter, but have a bunch of skills and something that's a cross-class skill, you're either pushing back your entry or you're grabbing a bunch of fighter and then level of, let's say, rogue. It, it's right? it's interesting because they've turned in 3.0 and 3.5 D&D more into a toolkit mm-hmm. to make things than uh, like you're telling the story of that class. Uh, I, I generally agree with that, yeah. It, which I think influenced the thinking of people even up to today. Like, I, I, I get people talking about multiclassing in 5e the same way they used to talk about multiclassing in 3.5. For sure. For sure. A, a lot of people had third as their first edition, as I don't need to tell you. And so it, it shaped their understanding of what this was. Um, yeah. Well, and also in, in third edition, that was really, for me anyway, maybe this happened with the late 2e kits, but I'm not, I don't remember it. But, uh, you know, when you're in, when you're making your character for third edition, you're building your character. Yep. It's a character build. You are making choices and doing things that ensure that if you make the right choices, you can achieve the prerequisites for that prestige class or for that, whatever that thing is that you're trying to achieve. And you have to do that from the beginning, basically. Yeah. I I think that even in late 2E, it's probably unkind to say they were actively coding for system mastery. Right. In third ed, it's not even a secret. They were absolutely coding for system mastery. Right. But I just mean from the player's perspective, from the, from, for the, from the ethos perspective, right. From the, The, uh-huh. the gestalt about how we think about third edition, it's the first edition of D&D where you're building your character. In, in, in first edition, you didn't build your character. You rolled it up yep. it's completely, you know, some, and if you came from, from, as Jeremiah and I mentioned earlier, if you came from BX or from Beckme, you rolled 3D6 down the line. And right. so you literally were just rolling and you got what you got. Right. Now, if you had a nice DM, you might be able to get rid of a help, a hopeless or helpless character and roll a new one. Right. Um, whereas in third edition, you're actually, you know, you've got standardized point by, you can actually create from scratch the character that you want. You're building right. it. And all of these classes are getting new features or choice point features like uh, bonus feats or whatever. Right. Just all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, those earlier edition classes, that's not a thing. Like the thief is a major outlier for the number of additional choices it gets. There's also a, uh, a form of multi-classing in third edition. It yep. needs to be brought up. Yep. Uh, so, so the one that I think you're going to say is the number one reason I wanted you on this episode, <laughs> because you're on the very short list of people I know who has uh, subjected yourself to it on purpose and with 
something resembling a clear conscience. The Gestalt. Uh, yeah, the Gestalt class, uh, a friend of ours. Uh, hi, Adam. Uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, decided he wanted to run a Gestalt game for a high-level module uh, where you're fighting demons and it, it was a whole thing. I can't remember the name of the, the module, but it was a it was a fairly high-end third edition module. It was like minimum level 15, something like that. And he had all of us make Gestalt characters. And I made a wizard cleric. So, so for sure, tell our audience what that even means. So Gestalt uh, and the mechanics of it are a little old on me, but the idea is you take two classes. You level those two classes side by side. You get all the benefits of each class side by side. All the except way for up. hit points. Except for hit points, which is like a, a basically an average of the two uh, hit dice. But, um, but yeah, other than that, you get all the ability, like I got all the abilities of being a cleric and a wizard uh, all the way up to level 18. Um, it, it needs to be said that there is no pretense that this is balanced with no. ordinary D&D, <laughs> not remotely, but by no, you know, no one thought that at any point. This was part of um, a, a, an optional rule set for, you want to do something weird and just play really high powered for a while? All right, here you go. Yeah, I mean, this is anime character power levels this is just ridiculous um it, you know it, even at low end it, it 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 more resembles a game of exalted than dnd um because you're just so powerful and it's fun uh it's a lot of paperwork but it's yep. not complicated paperwork well and if you're only familiar with fifth ed, then you might be thinking, but surely they just have a single pool of spell slots to spend from. So it's oh, fine. Oh, no, no friends. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. You have, separate columns, you a full separate column of each of your spellcasting classes. And these are vast, enormous columns. So you're just have so many spells in a day. It's not okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the guy who your actions in a round are the serious limiter on everything. Yeah, and wait, uh, where was this published? Uh, that's in Unearthed Arcana, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, the, I think that's so. We, we got I'm pretty sure we covered it. We covered it. Yeah, that's why I was like, this sounds really familiar. How come I know this, but it's not like I don't remember it in the like the no, it's, handbook. Yeah, it was in Unearthed Arcana, and. Uh, we had a blast, like we had an absolute blast playing, but we were so overpowered. The the grossest uh, one in the the group was like part scion, part I want to say he may have been a wizard too, but like he he just did disgusting things, like completely broke the system and made it cry. <laughs> um, and it's designed to do that. Um, but it was one of those weird sort of, if you want to do something completely different here, do this. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that, that was a, a thing in third edition. Um, and, and also I will point out now that I'm looking at it, cause I pulled that book out. Uh, 
we did we did talk about this grants quite a bit yeah, actually. Yeah. But when you look at this, here's what happens: you choose two classes, right? They can't be two versions of the same class, but you know whatever. You're still choosing two classes. You take the better hit die. You take the better yeah. uh, attack bonus progression. You take yep. the better saving throw progression. You get the higher number of skill points. And you can and you get the class skills from both, right? So remember that ho- horrible eye bleeding uppercase yep. C, lowercase C table. Now yep. you got to completely, you know, whatever. Uh, you get, you get the class features from both classes. I mean, that's it's just very. Oh my goodness! Wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's a lot, but like it's fine. Like you know what you're getting. It's yeah. not fair. It's not meant to be fair. Like I mean, you just fight oh, right. incredibly yeah. No, epic. You, yeah, you're basically stuff. playing. You're playing two PCs, but in in one PC. Yeah, yep. we're, we're we were taking on arch devils. Like it's and 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 mostly winning. Like it it didn't feel like we were going to lose at any point because we were just so disgustingly powerful. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. It's a there's a section balancing Gestalt characters. Obviously. This variant results in characters who are significantly more powerful than the D and D standard. <laughs> how much more? This? This, is, this is how much more powerful? The simple answer is they are twice as powerful, but that's not accurate. <laughs> yeah. They are actually even more powerful. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Can All you right. imagine doing this in five E? Oh, I mean, no. <laughs> that would be no. just what. <laughs> yeah, yeah it'd be, I mean, it'd be bonkers for sure. Um, and you know, uh, might be worth writing up. Actually, the thing is, though, in Fifth Ed, the action economy is king, right? So, I actually right. have I'm running a game for well, two players. And the concentration limit is the right. other, yeah, killer. right. And I, I'm running the game with two players, but they each have two PCs, so that there's four PCs. But because it's two PCs, their action economy is. And they roll separate initiative for them. So, you know, they, they get as many turns as four characters would. Whereas sure. if if we did this, it would still only be two PCs. They wouldn't necessarily get extra turns, so to speak, or extra actions. Right. So it wouldn't be quite as powerful. And uh, I, I, like, I really see how not adding more concentration availability would put a hard cap on how much more powerful it could be That's true. Um, but yeah you know, there's a lot of things you can do right now to get spells from other class lists added to your class list right. yeah so well it and sort of feels like you're almost there except of course you don't have the you know spell right. slots to just but do I'll, this all day well let's not also forget that fifth edition has every single class has a subclass that can cast spells so if you end up with if you did this, right, and you added all those spell slots and everything, I mean, you're making even more powerful, and everybody's using spells anyway, so it's even more It's even more spells, more and more. Sure. Yeah. Just what uh, Sam loves. Yeah, Sam <laughs> loves that. Um, so uh, I think that kind of closes our book on, uh, on Third Ed. I, I, will, I will add a, a, an extra note on Third Ed. Okay, go ahead. This is the first edition where third-party publishers were a major thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the OGL uh, really, really upended everything. (laughs) 
which expanded yeah. like your multi-classing options when you went off of the main books god help you became thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of options yep. right far more than you could ever keep track of well, well it's a it's a period of time in which you just don't release a book without at least a few new prestige classes it's just right. not a thing right yeah yeah, um, it would it be like, it would be like of, you know releasing a fifth edition supplement for for players that didn't have any subclasses in it. You'd yeah, be that'd like, be what? that'd be strange. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like it was a, it was a really different time if you weren't paying attention to D anD D then, either because you were too old or too young. <laughs> Take your pick. I resemble that remark. Uh, you were involved in third ed. I'm very clear on that. Yeah, that's true. Um, how about you? No, never mind. I'm teasing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's let's move into fourth ed. The the hour is later than you imagine. Uh, <laughs> yes. So so fourth ed. So fourth ed. <laughs> congratulations! There are three different multi classing systems, <laughs> and I didn't like any of them. <laughs> Yeah. I I feel things about all of them. Uh, I don't know that my feeling in any of them is outright antipathy, but one of them might come close. <laughs> so, okay. So, so to do this quickly, there's the feet one where you just pick up feats that are written to give you stuff from other classes. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, so the only... This is, it's going to be very limited in what you can buy it's gonna be limited but what it does is it opens up a paragon path for you uh there, there are some some paragon paths i think that are uh locked to you must have done some of this right uh, there's also paragon multi-classing yeah. where you don't take a paragon path and right. you instead right. basically take the first 10 levels of your your second class mm-hmm. right right and, and then there's hybrid class building they didn't come out too much later in the edition well uh, i mean 2008 was php1 which had those first two and 2010 was php3 which has much later in the edition halfway through the edition well yes but i'm side. just saying that's true but it was still only two years right yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. and basically they were they were doing this in the yeah. first year of like development. it is it is really hard to explain to someone who only knows fifth edition how accelerated the release cycle was in fourth. Oh yeah. I mean, we're talking a new hardcover uh, every month, a new player facing hardcover every month, I believe yeah. for, for years. And it's just hard to engage with content or, or, or play at that cycle. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so the feat system is it, entirely contained in what kinds of feats the games creators bother to write for you to, to buy. And that's not going to be very many. It is light touch multi-classing, certainly the least offensive of all of them it, yeah. it, in my mind. Um, right. And, and it's, it's very much not even, I mean, I, look, I'm hard pressed to call this multi-classing, right? Right. It's in fact, it, it's not even called multi-classing. It's just called taking a multi-class feat. Sure. Right? sure. It gives you one thing. And, and let's be real. Like the main thing you should be doing is picking up one of the uh, healing features from right. a leader class. Right. That's by far and away the best of those. Right. Yeah. Um, so then you've got your Paragon multi-classing where 
you're missing out on your cool Paragon features. Uh, and that seems like a decision because you're, you're missing out on damage scaling. Yeah. Like friends. No, I, re I remember reading that initially and going, well, so I'm not going to be doing any multi-classing, I guess. Right. It, yeah. There's, there's no reason you would actually do Paragon multi-classing. It's not yeah. well, good. And it, and the thing is to even qualify for it, you have to have taken three multi-class feats. Boo. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. and they there just aren't that many multi-class feats. There just right. aren't. I'm sh I mean, I'm not looking in Dragon Magazine. I'm sure there were some there, but like, sure, it just wasn't very popular. So they didn't really develop it very much more, because right. frankly, it sucked. Well, no, also, it, it definitely feels like a placeholder. But yeah. also, the way ability scores work, like the kinds of ability scores you need to to do classes well. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I cut you off, Jeremiah. No. Um, it it's almost unplayable. Like you, you just have to have two classes that have the same attack stat, right. and your your options are very, very narrow. And we talked about how ability score generation really informed the possibilities of multi-classing in first ed. I mean, it, it it's a choke collar on the possibilities of uh, fourth ed multi-classing because you need your attack stat to be your best stat. I think and that can't ever change. Yeah. Um, I think it also reflected the change in philosophy that you kind of see it in fifth edition now, which was the reason you wanted multi-classing in the first place is to combine these different kinds of fiction into a single character. Okay. We'll give you Paragon Paths to do that. Yep. Right. Well, and also just to defend this choice for a second, that sounds weird to defend the idea that they really didn't give a lot of oomph to the multi-classing thing here. Uh, fourth edition was designed to be balanced. Yeah. That was the, one of the main components of the design. Yep. There was no bounded accuracy, but the math was supposed to be, the intention was for it to be completely balanced and they balanced each class with roles and with certain that, – that's why Brandis can actually say you had to have your high – you know, your attack stat be the high, be the high one, right? Or the, the, the stat that was most important for you was really the most important for you because that's yep. what the math was balanced on. And so you can't really make a multi-class system like – this where you're just getting feats or you can't make it like you, like it was in third edition and still maintain that balance it would have completely thrown everything it would have been almost like gestalt characters in a way yep. because of what that would mean to having to you know to, to multi-class and also remember fourth edition kept the third edition idea of everybody proceeds at the same rate so, you know, that was one thing that first, you know, OD&D and first and second had that was different was the different classes, you know, accelerated it and, and, and leveled up at different rates. So, you know, you could actually multi-class and still get a fair few number of levels in one or the other class and not fall too far behind, right? Because a thief only needs 1,200 XP, 
You know what I mean? Instead of 4,000 or whatever. And so by the time that thief is third level, the wizard's still first level about to become second. And the thief is fourth and fifth level before that wizard even hopes to be, you know, whatever. But in third and fourth, they're leveled at the same rate. So you lose that mix and match ability that kind of makes a difference there. In third edition, they 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 did a lot of different things with multi-classing and made really powerful things. Here, because they were trying to maintain the balance and not have the linear fighter quadratic wizard problem show up, they didn't really want to give us good multi-classing, to be perfectly honest. Well, and and you know, let's be clear, we talked about the publishing model here of a player-facing book every month, sometimes two, to be honest. Yep. Uh, and as a result, there were so many Paragon paths that it was just oh, like... And, and whole new classes, my man. Yeah, yeah. Whole, whole new classes and whole new uh, Paragon paths that there was just like, you could multi-class, but why would you? You, you want to be able to be a guy who does this and this, Yep. Well, here's this Paragon class, or here's this new class that you didn't know about. And it was just, it was never, like, I, I think people would go looking for multi-classing because they were used to it in third, but the system didn't really need it to reflect the needs that multi-classing normally filled. Right. And the party didn't need it because you had roles. And as long as you had the roles filled by the different classes that the, that the PCs were, then you're going to be okay and you're going to be able to overcome the challenge that you're facing. You didn't need to multi-class to get something that nobody else had, so somebody in the party had to do it. You know what I mean? Right. The, the emphasis on uh, you need a balanced party where all the roles are filled uh, was very, very strong and forth. Right. Yeah. Um, so let me touch on hybrid multi-classing uh, rather, rather briefly so we can move on to fifth. Um, so the thing about hybrid multi-classing is it is full bore roll your own uh, multi-classing of um, while well, you, you can pick abilities from each of two classes, but you have to uh, like keep the total number of abilities fairly even. Um, and then there's, you know, all of these guidelines on which of the non-power features you're getting, like the, the baseline stuff you get at first level. Um, and th there's lots of guidance around that that is not especially easy to follow, uh, if, I'm, if I'm honest. Um, I did have a player use this. Uh, it was a, a multi-class um, Barbarian Rune Priest, uh, which was workable because they were both strength classes. Uh, one is a, a strength hitter and one is a strength leader, you know, a striker and leader, excuse me. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in real terms, it's fine. Um, I, I don't know that uh, it was materially better than just doing one or the other, but it was a party of six. And so all the rules were filled anyway. So you could just kind of pursue a concept and do a thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but like seeing it on the page, it is just 
what is happening. This is so complicated. Uh, in my recollection, anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was pretty clear. It was sort of tacked on because they knew people would, would expect it to be there because it was always part of D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. uh, and it didn't feel like it was baked in. Yeah. Uh, and like, like, I definitely understand. Well, D&D &D needs multiclassing. There's always been multiclassing. And where's our multiclassing? Yeah. And I'm sure they, right. they got tons of pressure from users to include something that felt more properly like multiclassing since they're facing so much criticism of this doesn't feel like D&D. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm absolutely positive. That's what it was. That's why this is in PHB three instead of PHB one. Right. Right. Uh, um, and you know, it does feel the most like multiclassing sort of. Yeah. Yeah. But even, you know, even their sidebar, it says uh, the hybrid character rules break down each class into parts the hybrid version of a class provides a portion of the game benefits of the normal class. When you combine with hybrid version of another class, these two partial classes create a whole class. But then it says, because character classes aren't designed to be broken down and recombined in this way, not every hybrid is equally effective. Right? Different, different combinations make different things. And of course, that could be a disclaimer or a warning or a piece of it you know, information about, about multi-classing in any system, but for fourth edition, it really was, look, you're actually breaking things when you do this. Cause we didn't build this system to do this. We literally yeah. did not make fourth edition for multi-classing. We yeah. made it for many different classes that are all balanced. Well, and th these classes are dizzyingly varied within them. Yeah, because you're choosing all these different powers that you know change your identity, and you've got subclasses within classes, right? Yeah. Uh, whether you're this kind of sorcerer or that kind of sorcerer, right? That the, they're meaningfully different. Um, well, I so mean, yeah, it's it's pretty unnecessary. There are so many core classes as well. Like you've got what, uh, uh, you know. Wizards, sorcerers, sword mage, warlocks, uh, avengers, clerics, rogues, invokers, paladins, rune priests, uh, fighters, rangers, uh, wardens, barbarians, druids, seekers, shamans, uh, ardents, battle minds, monks, scions, assassins, vampire. Yep. I mean, it's just... Yeah, that's not even the whole list. <laughs> you know, like the, those are just right. some of the classes, and that doesn't even include all of the uh, sub-options in them. And, yeah, it's there's so much stuff that they put in there that, you know, you shouldn't need it because there are so many options to build whatever you want. Yep. I, I definitely agree with that. Um and it wouldn't be surprising at all if there was yet another multi-classing system in a Dragon magazine somewhere. Uh, and, and now because I've, there's a lot of issues of, of Dragon for 4th Ed. And now I want to go back and reread the 4th edition stuff. <laughs> That's super fair. Um, like We're criticizing it here because the multi-classing is, is janky, but like I enjoyed my, my time in 4th Ed, and I'm playing in a 4th Ed game now that mm -hmm. a, a friend of mine is running. I'm getting to play a sword mage. 
sword mages rule. I, um, they absolutely rule. They do. I, I miss playing 4E sometimes, actually. I, I, um, I, I enjoyed the hell out of that game. Like, uh, one of the aspects of my thesis in this whole episode is <laughs> where my fifth head sword mage y'all because I, I love EKs don't get me wrong I love Eldritch Knights and I don't have anything materially against um, Blade, uh, Blade Singers except that their D6 hit die means that they're really really relying on their mana shield I mean spell slots for mitigation so, ouch. But yes, they have great AC. That's wonderful for them. <laughs> Just, where are my Sword Mage, y'all? Uh, because Sword Mage feels so good in in fourth. The Aegis feature is so good. It is the ideal blend in the whole history of D&D for me of um, I'm a fighter who is also a spellcaster I do both of those things frequently at the same time you know, with the same action. I'm hitting things with a sword and casting spells. Um, I, we, we skipped over the Duskblade class that was a, a third ed attempt to be a, a, a fighter mage single class. Um, you'll often hear a word thrown around to talk about fighter mage multi-classes very specifically. That word is gish. <laughs> This sounds like maybe it's some kind of weird internet slur on a fighter mage concept. <laughs> I don't know, but like a, a lot of people sort of turn their noses up at the word. It's part of Githyanki cultural lore mm-hmm. from old, old, old D and D, and so I love it. It's 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 stupid and specific, and I love it. It's the best. Um, and so it's surprising to me that um. You know, in in fifth ed, you've got paladins that are a little bit, you know, fighter clerics and and have uh, spells up to fifth level. You've got rangers a little bit fighter rogue druids and have spells up to fifth level. And then there's not like the the ek just isn't the same thing. Um, so only because it, it doesn't get spells up to fifth level. I mean, it goes to fourth, but mm, like, what's it, the? It, it's it's action economy is not as um, mm-hmm. pure and clean and to the point as the paladins. Yeah. Um, there's the thing where you like uh, cast a cantrip and then make a single attack as a bonus action. Um, that's nice if it's what you need, but yeah. it. Mm, uh, it's they, they they basically get the benefit of doing their own self buffs and and that's nice and like abjuration is great for that yeah um, yeah and, and uh, the the cool pull the sword to you thing but that's well sure I, I do love weapon bond I'm yeah, I'm yeah. a big fan of weapon bond like I, I've played an, an ek and and had a good time with it don't get me wrong just um. In in my mind, they're sort of up against paladins. You know, maybe arguably the most overtuned class in fifth ed. So, mm-hmm. it's tough, guys. It's tough. Um, yeah, but you know, in all fairness, um, if what you really want is someone who can fight and cast spells up to fifth level, I mean, Jeremiah 
one should tell us about a Ballasmith artificer. Well, yes. Those guys rule. <laughs> uh, it, think of them as arcane paladins. Right. Cause, With, cause, well, and, and they have, you know, cool metal dogs or yeah, yeah. panda bears or whatever. Yeah. yeah. With them. <laughs> it's, it's like I'm part paladin, part beastmaster ranger uh, that casts, uh, that creates my own magic items. I'm here to give you a bad day. Right. And, and artificers have been around since uh, third ed, or if you squint pretty heavily second, but um, they really kind of do it all in, in fifth. Yeah. Um, there, um, are th- there are a few things that they don't do. Like, sure. If you're looking for a uh, wizard battle kind of caster, they're not great at that. The battlesmith is not the place to be. You've got artillerist for yeah. incredible sustain. Yeah. So uh, I've gotten us a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, sure, sure, sorry. Sure. Um, let's let's actually cover fifth ed multiclassing. Sure. Um, so it is the most like third edition multiclassing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can choose your next class level to be whatever. There is a stat prereq you have to meet, which is not crazy steep, but it's a stat prereq. Um, And then your spellcasting doesn't form two separate columns. They just, you just combine your spell lists and your, your, your total spellcaster levels or part of your spellcasting. If you're, some of your levels are a half caster or whatever um, to get your total number of spell slots. This can lead to having spell slots that you don't yet have any spells of that level in because just to use an example from another of my campaigns, uh, let's say you're a, a third level cleric, sixth level wizard. Well, you've got fifth level slots because you're a ninth level spellcaster but you don't have have any fifth level spells yet. Your highest level spells are third. What do you do? You upcast, right? So it's solving the spellcaster problem in kind of an odd way. Um, But it does work. And I've been really surprised at how effective um, the cleric wizard multiclass in my game is. Um, Yeah. I I say that... uh... I probably interface with younger players of D&D more than either of you on a regular basis. Well, other than Sam playing with sure. uh, specifically two new players. I, I meant in a general sort of... Right. Uh, because I'm t- on TikTok uh, right. and have a sizable portion, I get a lot of questions from young new players. Um, well, you're, you're, you're a D&D icon, my man. Uh <laughs> Uh, there are certainly bigger people out there, but uh, I, 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 I'd like to think that I'm the sort of person in D&D TikTok that the other D&D TikTokers will go and ask questions of because I've been around forever, apparently. But one of the things I've seen as the consistent complaint from the younger players is the prerequisites requirement, um, which I try and explain, you know. It's there to keep you from making truly broken characters, among other things. Um, but uh, 
yeah, it's it's the one thing I keep hearing over and over again. Well, why that, that's broken? That, that's stupid. It shouldn't be that way. And I'm like, they put it there for a reason. <laughs> yep. It's not an arbitrary uh, thing. Well, and there's there are still a lot of character optimization ideas that are, you know, uh, take one to three levels of this class and then take the rest of your levels as this other class. Because yeah. you want to combine some of the early class or subclass abilities found in this class with the stuff over here. Uh, Fighter 2 is a great level dip for anyone who uses a weapon because fighting styles and action surges and second wind. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, Sorcerer uh, Warlock. Sure. The, the Sorlock is a very yeah. Yeah. popular uh, combination. Um, oh, it, back in third ed, we sort of skipped over the fact that uh, if you multiclassed out of Monker Paladin, you were never coming back. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's another one where I saw DMs ignore that rule, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it didn't serve a ton of purpose. So, you know, fair. Uh, it was supposed it to have was, some kind of narrative weight, but it man. was legacy, right? The, where yeah. you, you know, you have a paladin in first edition who must be lawful good and must follow certain strict behavior codes. And right. if they did not, they lose their powers. Right. And in, the, in this case, the behavior codes include <laughs> entering another class, but <laughs> right. you kept your powers. You just yeah. couldn't go back to advancing as a paladin. Uh, and Whereas, so you, you would run into prestige classes that needed to specifically uh, grant permission to go back to monk or paladin afterward. Um, but yeah, in, in fifth edition, we got rid of uh, alignment requirements for the most part. And so uh, that's no longer an issue with transitioning in fifth edition. Uh -huh. um, and this is the point where I'm going to say uh, my contention that gets me a lot of grief on said platform I mentioned earlier. Fifth edition really doesn't need multiclassing at this point. Um, it maybe needed it when the game launched because there just weren't as many options available. Um, but with all of the subclasses, um, especially if you add in third party, sure. and, and all of the feats that are available, you can get the experience of dipping into a class without ever dipping into a class. There are some really nice feats for uh, letting you grab specific things. Um, Tasha's introduces new ones for um, artificers in specific. Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite nice. And we're seeing a little bit more um, possibility for uh progression as a spellcaster beyond what magical adept and ritual caster get you um, in the new Unearthed Arcana, the Dragonlance content specifically. Um, and those are real nice, though it, it still is an open season on pick a class feature, buy that with a feat, right? Because the fighter stuff you can get is martial adept, if you specifically want Battlemaster, which you should, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, 
Weapon Master. No, you shouldn't buy that. That's real bad. And um, uh, light, medium, heavy armor proficiency feats. Uh-huh. And then uh, medium armor master and heavy armor master, which aren't fighter features, but they're nice to have. And fighting style. you can And uh, fighting style, true. That's yeah, Natasha's. Yeah. yeah, you can do that one. Um, and uh, the for a long time, the reason to take thief was often uh expertise but you can take a thief true take yep. a, a feat that will give you that yep um, I mean, uh, like if what you want is skills you can also just get skilled yeah. uh like resilient is an amazing feat for you know picking up the save of something but it needs to be pointed out you know if it costs you four feats to, to achieve your concept you need a different concept <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, um, but I, I think the story reason for multiclassing can be met by doing those things. Um, I will say that specifically if you want a, a cleric wizard split, uh, your options are fairly narrow and fairly, fairly clunky. Um So you've got your Arcana domain, which is a little bit of a wizard cleric, but you need to really want what Arcana gives you. Or, sorry, um, there was at one point a Mystic Theurge uh, subclass for wizards, but uh, that did not make it out of Unearthed Arcana at all. Uh, Instead showed up as the Divine Soul Sorcerer, uh, which is quite nice and very popular, right? Sure. But if what you want is a wizard experience, it's, it's not the same. Uh, so there are still some specific gaps, right? But I mean, if multiclassing weren't around, I would not miss it all that much personally. Uh, but one of my players would be heartbroken. And so I do feel uh, compelled to some degree to, to stand up for his perspective. Uh <laughs> He takes the the view that um, you know, people are generalists in a lot of cases. They they will go like fill gaps in their knowledge, and so for him, uh, multiclassing is sort of the only believable thing. He's a hard time understanding a character sticking to one class all the way up. Okay. Um, uh, Whereas I take the different tack that, you know, multiclassing is not needed. <laughs> and not just in fifth edition, but in any edition. Fair enough. Would you like to also tell them to get off your lawn? Yes, I would. Okay. Just wanted to check. They can go with haste. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the edition that uh, is Sam's least favorite, uh, it is the most needed to just engage with some of the content. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can also decide I don't want prestige classes and that's a legit decision. Fifth Ed agrees with you. Uh, yeah. But um, looking at, at third and, and thinking, well, you don't need multi-classing comma space, except that I want some of these prestige classes to be a thing is what holds up to an argument. I think. Sure. I, I would 
to to the the argument that uh, people are are generalists. It would make more sense if we weren't using classes. Oh, for sure, for sure. Because uh, like you're a fighter, that means that compared to your average Joe, you're a master martial artist. Yep, and, and then, yeah, and that absolutely also has to do with. Okay, so there's this 20 level cap, like there's no progression above 20th level. So even if you're a generalist, you can't be like a cleric three wizard 20 the way you absolutely could in third ed. And, and let's be clear, most of the discussion about multi-classing online for 5e are here's how you do a, a broken build. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, character op- optimization is a, a huge uh like a source of gravity in the whole conversation. No question. Yeah. And I've even like, when I've broached the subject on TikTok, I'll get comments like, I do it for story reasons. Okay. What was your story reason? I wanted to be a, a paladin and a wizard. Sure. Like, what's, uh, what, what's the story though? <laughs> my, my story reason is that like, I wanted to be someone who, uh, found paladinhood after being a wizard for a while that is a good story reason but right. usually so, when so I, like that's my character from the the old sierra quest for glory games because yeah. you could do that it was great but yeah it's it, more often than not it, when you get them to break it down it's but their story reason is they wanted the story of being able to do this cool uh you know broken thing and i'm like <laughs> <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's not a story I mean, sure. it, it allows you to tell a story later. I did this cool broken thing and killed the dragon in one shot, but. Right. Like um, a lot of my imagination that was not specifically shaped by D&D, but that I'm always looking to D&D to answer unfairly of me is a point by system because it's, you know, the LARPs that we play, sure. which are point by based. And so I absolutely would love to be able to like uh, I, I pick a bunch of sorcery and then I go be a fighter for a while. And, and, and you know, these just add together and then I go pick up more sorcery and it's fine. And there's not sort of yeah. some of the kind of upper limit on that or whatever. It, it doesn't have weird multi-classing problems. Yeah. It I mean, all fits together. The GURPS model is fine for that. Um, and I think, um, you know, again, from the LARP side of things, you and I have dealt with wizards as healers oh, for, for sure. so long on the LARP side that it's frustrating that it isn't available in sure. D&D. Like, it I mean, bugs yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, my, I agree. my preferred game, Castles and Crusades, has an illusionist class, which is a wizard that focuses on illusions that can actually heal. Yeah. I was reading that the other day and mm -hmm. it just struck me as a strange move for them that it is not some kind of different healing spell that is illusionary, but it's It's, instead cure wounds a level later. I mean, it's, it's meant to be to keep the system simple, right? Sure. Yeah, Yeah. But they do outline several reasons why they did it that way. And it makes sense the way that they, you know, outline why they did it that way. 
but it it's it has that same you know it fills that same niche i guess is my point right yeah the you know the the thing is like i would be okay with quote unquote multi classing if it was a classless system right like like i was sure. saying earlier today to someone that you know if we just had a situation where you picked your ancestry or your culture right and then you picked let's say uh, up to 10 up to 10 aspects of your character, right? Not aspects as in fate aspects, but like little packages of things, right? So you could pick one that lets you do a little bit like of what a thief could do traditionally and one that lets you do a little bit of what, you know, a, a bard could do traditionally and then one that lets you cast spells and however, you know, if you do the big spell one, you get a lot of spell possibilities and if you do the little spell when you get a little bit of, you know and mix and match and just leave it open so that you're basically creating your own character based on what you want and then everybody basically is doing the same right they're picking their own thing i'm totally okay with that but when you have a game where it's laid out where this class does this and this class does this and that class does that and that class does this other thing and there's so many options. Like, do you really need to multi-class? No, you don't. You just no. really don't need to multi-class. There are many options. And I would even posit that even early on, because Jeremiah, you said earlier that maybe early on it was needed. I still don't think it was needed early on. Because the four core plus that you get in the PHB for fifth edition and the subclasses available to them is enough. I'll disagree with you. That's fine. Everybody's able to do that. <laughs> the reason I disagree with you is role-playing games are a tool set for reflecting a fiction you want to see. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fantasy uh, fiction where there's the character that can do more than just one thing well. Um whether it's uh, the Grey Mouser or Elric or a range of other characters, mm -hmm. uh, the notion of this character can only do one thing and one thing well isn't actually as standard as D&D would have us be without multi-classing. Well, and my response to that would be none of the 5th edition characters only do one thing well. Everybody gets a background that can give them other possibilities. Every subclass. Right. Has, we're, we're not uh, talking about fifth edition, though. You mentioned the original D&D, the old first edition, second edition. They didn't multi need multi-classic. Sure. Back then, they did because you couldn't reflect the fiction you were trying to generate. Now, we've got so many options that you don't need it. But back then... We didn't have those options. Right. But that, that's because the the type of thing that you were trying to emulate there, the designers anyway, was actually a very small niche of things, relatively speaking. And that's why when we talked about the evolution of the game, that started broadening out. And that's why they ended up adding all of those options. Right. But my, my conjecture is that fit, in fifth edition specifically, even if you only had the PHB, it's okay to have characters that can't do everything because none of them do just one thing very good, right? 
they all do at least one to two to three things very good, not just one. Because well, fifth edition characters are very powerful. There, there was a, a time where I was of the school of thought with fifth edition that multiclassing was fine as long as you were doing it for an in care, like in play story reason. Uh, the example I usually gave was in one of Brandis's campaigns, I uh, became friends uh, with my pal. Um, the good fellow, uh, a, a, a fey lord, a trickster. I was a fighter. It's fine, guys. He'll be fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, but I, I, I was very strongly tempted to take uh, a level of warlock, so and going a level or two of warlock and be, but basically the archfey warlock to reflect that story of him becoming too close to this, this fairy Lord. Now I'm more like, you know what? I can just do that with a feet or two. And, and, and before anyone uh, sends me hate mail, yes, I'm aware of Eldritch Adept in Tasha's. I just forgot to list it earlier. It exists. It's great. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a, uh, so that's why I, I, I changed uh, modes on uh, 5e because it's like, oh, okay, a lot of the story reasons why you might dip into another class in mid-play can now be met by taking a feed or two to reflect that you've developed a relationship with this other power, whether it's you became close to a god or you uh, developed a, yeah. As a general statement, I like multiclassing for my story changed away from what it was otherwise going to be. And I need to reflect that new narrative. That's, that, that's my preference. But um, the, the thing that the, the cleric wizard is doing in my game, it, it, it comes together. Yeah. Uh, he's very much playing a, a, a crafter. And so he's got the forge domain on, on one side and then also studying wizardry and all that can do for him. And that makes sense to me in, in setting. Yeah, and yeah. I, I can I can certainly build a con, construct in my head the the thinking of doing an arcane domain cleric and then taking a few levels of wizard to sort of expand that yep. that story. Um, I mean, mostly understand. I'm just poking, right? Like, sure, sure. I don't really care. <laughs> Honestly, sure, it, I don't. I personally don't generally enjoy multiclassing because in fifth edition, particularly. If you're going to play in a campaign that goes up all the way up to 20, you're better off not multi-classing for a lot of classes. because yeah, Right. The, the classes where that's not true are right. really unfortunate. Right. Exactly. Um, but I, I'm just saying, but I mean, ultimately, I don't really care. I just personally don't like multi-classing for sure. you know variety of reasons. But, you know, I, I'm not, I'm just ma- making my normal disclaimer. I'm not saying that anybody who enjoys it is having yeah. bad, wrong fun. I'm not doing that. And I'm not saying any of the additions are bad for having it. I'm just saying me, my personal preference is I would just yeah. rather not. Sure. I, I will certainly say that any class that you're best suited to multi-class out of, that's a design problem that, yeah. should, that should get addressed. Also, also, because uh, all of us are published uh, game writers. Yeah. Uh, 
this would be an excellent chance for you to explore the third-party market for <laughs> all of the extra options that might not be met by the core features available from Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> Lord knows, drive through and uh, the DMs Guild and presumably also itch.io and other things I don't even know about are here to f- supply you with content. So much content. I mean, and, would and you like to drink of, from the fire hose? <laughs> a lot of it is really quality stuff. Um, yeah. and, you know, uh, Cobalt Press makes some, some great stuff. Uh, I've, I've written classes. If you don't like the classes, I've written classes. Brandis has written classes. Thank There's you. a, there, there, there are lots of options available uh, outside the core what's in the Wizards of the Coast books that further reduce the need for multiclassing to achieve a particular story you're looking for. If reducing multiclassing is the way you want to go. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, you should probably get off the devil's lettuce and we should probably end this episode. Yes, we probably should. So uh, let's let's hit some final thoughts if there's anything we haven't already covered. Uh, what you got, Sam? Um, I, not much. I, okay. I don't really have any final thoughts. I feel like, you know, look, the ultimate truth is that more options is usually welcomed by players. Sure. And my only advice is if you're a DM and your player wants to use a a, a new multi-class method or wants to use a new class or some new set of something, make sure you look at it first. That's all. Sure. Jeremiah, what you got? Um, Well, I'll, I'll touch on something that Sam mentioned. There is no wrong fun here. Like if you if you want you enjoy doing the power builds or you just didn't want to use multiclassing for whatever reason, you should. Um, the whole point over the course of, the, of its existence was to allow you to make the character that you wanted uh, when the core assumptions of the classes weren't there for you. Uh, and you know, explore make make choices and and make the characters you want and have fun just make sure everybody at the table is on the, on board with that same fun i think those are uh those are good points i think that if you're on a different uh sort of trend line of character optimization than the rest of the table somebody's not gonna have a good time uh so you you want to be on about the same degree of character optimization thinking as everyone else so that's a good starting conversation point. And uh, I mean, I, I think that multiclassing as a concept, you know, being available to players is a sacred cow in D&D and will continue to be part of the game uh, for as long as, you know, D&D is a thing. Uh, however many or few years left we have playing. <laughs> and so uh, with that, we're going to, I think, wrap this episode and thank you all for listening. Uh, Jeremiah McCoy, where can our listeners find you? Well, I have a website, jeremiahmccoy.com, where I uh, publish my blog uh, 
infrequently, but I publish there. Uh, you can find me on TikTok where I post more frequently as Basics of the Game, where I mainly talk about geeky gaming stuff and occasionally current affairs. And uh, on Twitter, I am Tech Noir. Awesome. Sam, where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can find me. You can find me on rpgmusings.com or on Twitter at DM Samuel, or of course all over the Tome Show. Also on the DMs Guild, but you know whatever. How about you, sir? Well, uh, on Twitter, I am at Brenda Stoddard. Um, I write for Tribality.com. My personal blog is BrandisStoddard.com, and I have a Patreon that is Brandis Stoddard. And uh, to conclude this episode, uh, I would like to leave you with just a couple of messages. Um, trans rights are human rights. Reproductive rights are human rights. And Black Lives Matter. Thank you very much. Absolutely. 100%.